This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, approach plates are going to get a little bit easier to read. And now that President Trump is in office, pilots in South Florida need to be on the lookout near Lantana. AOPA goes to bat to lower prices at certain FBOs. And owners and pilots of aircraft without electrical systems now have guidance for their aircraft with ADSB on the horizon. All right, David, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do Hangar Talk, Ian. David, top story. Uh, we teased it coming in. The approach plates, FAA, they don't do this often where they it's they add information. You know, occasionally it's little bits of stuff. But this right. is a whole new piece that they're going to put on the government approach plates. And um, now you, you said you're not instrument rated, right? I'm not instrument rated. I'm a longtime instrument student. So you got to explain this one to me, Ian. No, no, it's not hard. Um, so, well, you know that the name of the approach matters in terms of what type of equipment you need in the airplane, Absolutely. Right? Okay, so um, if it's an ILS... It's right up there at the top. Yeah, it's like ILS runway... Well, here in Frederick, it's runway 23. Uh-huh. And that tells me, all right, well, I know I need a localizer, I need a glide slope exactly. to be able to do that approach, right? Okay, I do understand that much. Okay, so Got we it. know that. Now, the problem is, that's always been the case for the final approach course. Okay. So from final approach fix inbound to missed approach point, it's like, this is the equipment you're going to need. Oh. But a lot of approaches, you need secondary pieces of equipment. To start the approach. Exactly, to, to do transition in. routes right, and stuff like that. Right. Initial fix to final, that sort of thing. And ah. so instead of now having going to the uh, like the profile view and saying, uh, oh, man, okay, let's see. Well, we've got a VOR transition route or a GPS or, man, I might need an NDB to do this. Right. Or I should say an ADF. The FAA in a little strip. Uh, below, what is it? It's right below kind of the frequency information. It's kind of like they added something to it. Yeah, yeah. They, they took out a little bit of that alternate takeoff uh, clearance or alternate uh, non-standard alternates. Um, they're going to say, hey, this is what you might also need to do this approach. So this will be more visual. This will be a, a visual cue to pilots that they, they could rely on some other additional equipment that kind of helps to get the job done. Yeah, so instead of having to go through and, and basically do it for yourself, they're going to do the hard work for us. Um, That'd be great. Yeah, it's nice. You know, <laughs> one thing I found kind of funny about this is that that's all well and good, except you have to remember that the FAA assumes right. 
that since you're IFR, you, you have at least one VOR. At least one VOR on your on your aircraft. You're yeah. supposed to. Yeah. But and, now we're in the future. In the, who knows, right? Right. We're in the GPS age. Yeah. And uh, well, that's the hot hot data box right now is GPS, but we don't know what the future is going to be. There might be something else. Yeah. Up. So who knows? Ten years from now, they might have to say VOR required because right now, oh right, once these go in, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're not uh, they're not going to say VOR required. They just it assumes that you have that that you've got um, you know a localizer or be able to have a CDI for VOR or whatever the case may be for the approach. So um, it's going to start uh, what next year? I think twenty eighteen. Looks like it's twenty eighteen. Yeah, it takes. I've got a buddy actually who works in the charting office, and we talk about kind of like the chart process, uh-huh. and it's. Um, it's you know it's this behemoth thing that of course has many a lot of moving checks and parts, balances right. to make sure all the information's correct and so it's like any change takes them a long time to implement. Sure, well that makes sense to give us a little bit of leeway with that and also to get instructors on board with what the changes might be. Yeah, and really if you think about it, where they just uh, the FAA just updated the pilots' handbooks and everything, and mm-hmm. maybe that's something that would have to be readdressed as yeah. well. Yeah, and I mean that's yeah you you know you make a great point. It's like every time you make a little change, right. Oh my gosh! The ripple effect of all the different orders and books and a lot—it's you know, lot. it's unbelievable. Keeps the printing uh, business yeah. going, that's for yeah, sure. Right? right. <laughs> Keeps your buddy in the charting business. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, that'll be easier for pilots. I think that must be a good thing. Yeah, I think it's it'll be a, a nice little addition. So we'll see how that goes. Um, you know, it's more information, which is always a good thing, not less. So maybe I should um, wait to get my IFR rating until 2018. There you go. This is yeah. in place. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay, so something a little more current that's going to happen really probably any week now. Any time now. Yeah, we don't know when, but um, President Trump, as we record this now. President Trump has uh, had his inauguration just last weekend on Friday, last Friday. Yep, yep. Here in D.C. Of course, he has a, a really uh, big and sort of prominent residence down in Palm Beach County, Florida. Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, that apparently, I never followed this before, but apparently goes too often, I guess. He was there quite often on in the uh, time during his transition period after the election and before the inauguration. He was there quite a lot. In fact, he's dubbed it the Winter White House on social media. Oh, he's, he, yeah. he called it the Winter White House? Yeah, apparently oh. so. So I guess that says he's going to go down there in the winter. I think he'll winter in Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, yeah. And th- but that's right near Lantana Airport, which you told me earlier before the podcast that you have been down in that area. Yeah, before. I've been down there a little bit. Well, anybody who's flown in Florida, speaking of ADSB and all that stuff, it's like if, if you've got traffic, uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, all of a sudden, it's like you're flying down the coast, and you might see a few airplanes here or uh, there, and you hit Florida, and it's like, poof, the it thing explodes. Up. Yeah. Right. And so Lantana, which is you know very close to Mar-a-Lago, it's a, it's a heavy-duty general aviation airport. There's a lot going on there. It's very busy. Yeah. And so when Trump's in town, operations at, at this airport and about a dozen others will be affected. And usually what happens is there's a 30 nautical mile ring that's around the mm-hmm. key airport. And that could, in effect, you know, close down or severely limit a lot of GA operations. Yeah. And so um, I was just reading up on this a little bit and, you know, people towing banners sightseeing, parachuting, crop dusting, and even seaplane operations could all be affected as well as, of course, flight training. Yeah, flight so, training is a big one. And you're right. That's a, that's a very populated part of South Florida. And really, I did a real quick uh, little um, distance measurement on my foreflight here. Hmm. And yeah. it encompasses everything from uh, way north of Palm Beach International all the way down to Fort Lauderdale Executive. Wow. That's a pretty big swath. It is right yeah. there, and then of course west. Uh, there's uh, several airports affected all the way to. You're down in near uh, Lake Okeechobee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're on the out in the more rural area. I'm there. in the hinterlands. Yeah. At, how, how do you pronounce it? Pawaki. 
It's Pahokee. Pahokee. Oh, yeah, of course. Pahokee, yeah. Have you yeah. done seaplane stuff near there? Uh, I haven't. No, I've actually never been. Uh, seaplanes and alligators, you know, I don't think they mix. But um. <laughs> <laughs> There's a parachuting operation right there yeah. at Pahokee because I see the little right. emblem on the, ma- yeah. on, the, on the chart. Yeah, so, you know, there's all kinds of different implications there. I think, you know, they mentioned training. One thing about Southport is, you know, you've got a lot of professional flight, not professional flight training, but people who are learning to fly to be a professional pilot. Right. And so, um, or you get Europeans who come over and because yeah. it's cheaper to learn here. It, the, America's the best place to learn. Yeah. They, um, you know, they'll come for like a month and stay and try and knock out their training. But it's like, if he's down there for two weeks. That's, there goes your month right yeah, there. Yeah. It's a, uh, so I, I we're going to have to work our way through this. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. I agree with you on that. And I've actually been down to that part of uh, South Florida as well. Um, I flew my Mooney down there to get the, the fuel tank sealed over oh. at um, Fort Lauderdale Executive. Oh, cool. And uh, you're right about the traffic. It's uh, and and that particular airport was was quite extensive with GA operations. Oh yeah, and all up and down the eastern seaboard, and especially the you know southeastern part of Florida. Yeah. So um, Mark Baker weighed in on this even uh, several weeks ago, asking for the president's help in minimizing this type of effect, and he detailed the importance of of that airport and mm-hmm. those you know that area, and really six airports will be affected hugely, and that's a. Uh, more than one billion dollars of economic wow. impact, Ian. I believe it. And you That's know, President amazing. Trump is for more, uh, you know, more economic measures and you know, mm-hmm. better business. Yeah, bigger jobs and yeah. yeah. So we're hoping that that something like that will really, you know, they'll take that in consideration and maybe see what kind of measured effects we could we could handle to mitigate that. Yeah, and I, you know, it happens with every president. I mean, it's not a political thing. It's like, um, you know, when uh, George W. Bush was president, he would come up to Camp David all the time. Uh-huh. And so Frederick and the surrounding area would always be impacted because it'd go to 10 miles. And right. I know the Obamas, um, well, they went to, I think, like Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard a few times. A few times. And Hawaii, you said, is where yeah, he vacationed so. a lot. And also the Bushes uh, would vacation up there in uh, Martha's Vineyard a lot, wouldn't they? Oh, uh, yeah, in Kennebunkport because he right. lived at his dad's place. Yeah. Right, right. Yep. Out near Houston as well. Yeah. So this so this type of uh, flight restrictions has affected other cities as well. Yeah. We can look to that for guidance. But it's just it doesn't seem like that the density of That's GA right. operations were as high I agree. in those areas. I agree. And of course, it's still to, you know, not even uh, unspoken at all. That is the New York issue and and Trump Tower, which that could be something else completely. Well, we have Teterboro Airport up near there, Newark. We have, besides the big ones, LaGuardia and JFK, many, many small airports all the way out to Long Island. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a wait and see, but I know we're uh, we're paying attention to that and, and doing what we can to, to mitigate it. But you We know. got ahead of that, you know. Mark yeah. Baker sent that note that's right. quite some time ago, so that's yeah. good. That is good. So another uh, sort of legal um, regulatory thing that's going on, ADSB. Uh, we're marching our way slowly towards January 1st, 2020. That's coming soon. So something came out a, a couple weeks ago that's going to impact a, a lot of folks, something we don't often talk about with ADSB, which is non-electric. And you're going to have to school me on this one. <laughs> All right. So I, I went to school a little bit on this myself, Ian. So ADSB, Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast Requirements, these are for uh, requirements for operators when in aircraft that don't have electrical systems. Okay. Aircraft that were made, uh, let's just say, before you and I were born, for the most part. <laughs> and uh, so what's going to happen with that? Well, aircraft that were uh, put together, made, and, and hit the market before they, uh, that electrical systems were prevalent don't actually have to equip with ADSB. Oh, okay. So uh, that could be a good thing for folks who own that type of aircraft. Piper Cubs come to mind where sure. you're hand-cranking that bad boy. Yep. Luscombe, some Taylor craft aircraft of that nature yep. and also 
balloons and gliders. Hmm. Which that's something that you hardly that's interesting. Ever think yeah, about. Wouldn't gliders you, yeah, or yeah, you wouldn't consider it. So there are exceptions for these type of aircraft from the ADSB requirement. So any aircraft not originally certificated with an electrical system or that has not been subsequently certified with such a system uh, doesn't have to have one. Now, what's the deal with this is that there was some confusion because, you know, I think there was a uh, there was an assumption that FAA had just picked up the transponder language and dropped it into the ADSB. So, like, if you didn't have to have a transponder before, so the Cubs and other folks without without an engine driven electrical system, right? Same case with the ADSB. And so this this legal interpretation that came out had something to do. I guess there was a confusion in the language. Well, I was just reading a little bit further on this, and and I think one of the phrases that was in there was engine driven. As far as uh, the, the, that phrase was causing confusion among aircraft owners. So oh, okay. So an engine driven system. But okay. Now when I had my air coupe. Yeah. And it was an IFR capable air coupe. Was it really for real? Oh my god. But it had a <laughs> had a Venturi tube okay. that powered, you know, several instruments. So, yeah. Uh, but it did have an electrical system. Yeah, it must have with the IFR. It, it did. So, uh, so that so I, that one would I would have had to have ADSB in that air coupe. But I know some people like let's say Cubs. I mean, just because that's the classic non electrical uh, aircraft uh, J three. Right. That hasn't been you know that wasn't not, not at like a Super Cub. Um, so J three, no electrical system, hand prop. All that stuff. Some people I know carry batteries uh, for like radios. Sure, for handheld. They want to fly with, within the system. Yeah. They want to talk to the tower. Yeah. And some gliders I know, it's like they've got batteries for transponders because they're going up into the flight levels. Right. So the deal is, I guess this is saying, well, that's still okay because it's not an engine-driven electrical system. That's my understanding. Yeah. Okay. And and I see that as a as it's sort of a win for aircraft owners that have these type of aircraft. Yeah. But I really must say that it might be a bit of a lose for folks who are depending on having the ADSB information in other aircraft. For instance, yeah. if we're flying in that same area and we assume that there are no traffic hits from the ADSB, but yet there's a an aircraft with a non-electrical system that's up in the air, it won't hit on that ADSB. Hmm. You know what it, it just it's amazing. it speaks to the confusion around ADSB. I mean don't even get to like to, to the weather and the you know the if you have ADSB out with traffic then you get in but if you don't have out you get some of the in and it's like uh it just you know goes to show that it's like you can't rely solely no, on the traffic can't. picture. You can and that's why when we are doing VFR flying yeah. by visual rules still the the number one uh, name of the game is you know, see and be seen. Yeah. Look out and always avoid. be seen and avoid. Right. Yeah. See and avoid. So yeah. that's the, it's still, still the, uh, the pilot still has to look out mm. and you still have to maintain traffic awareness. So hmm. some of the high tech gizmos might not help us all the time. So as pilots, we just need to be wary. Yeah. Yeah. Makes that's, sense. That's a great point. Okay. But it's interesting that that was, that was clarified. There was a, a lot of confusion about that, and I clearly bet. there still is. I bet, because, yeah, if you had a Cub, you're like, wait a second. How am I, how well, am I the thing is, this but, thing? you know, Cubs are a pretty valuable commodity now. Yeah, that, yeah, they are. But there yeah. are other aircraft that are non-electrical. Yeah, all kinds. Yeah. Pilots might say, hey, you know, my aircraft, is, the value is X, and, uh, and equipment with ADSB, it just might be onerous yeah. you know, to, to put all that in. Yeah. So I do understand that. Yeah, absolutely. My concern. Well, speaking of uh, cost, you know, this next story that we're going to talk about, it's something that um, we haven't, AOPA in general, we haven't been talking about this very much. And um, it's because 
Well, there's, you know, I, I would say still trying to work out exactly. It took us a long time. We did a study. Right. Um, on what? Well, so yeah, I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm circling the wagons on this one. You better. Uh, what's the biggest airport you've flown into? Uh, busiest. Oh, well, you know what? Uh, uh, PDK in Atlanta is usually pretty busy. But I, busy. I, fl- I flew into Teterboro you with, did. Dave, with Dave Hirschman. Yeah, okay. I would say that was the biggest. There were planes there from from all across the world. Yeah, yeah, they were badged with, with you know from different countries. Um, and fuel you, prices were yeah. real high. Well, so that's my question. And, and the ramp fee was real high. Do you remember how much it was? I think it was two hundred bucks to okay. land. Yeah. So yeah, when you include the landing fee, the ramp, and Teterboro is right right next to New York City. Yeah, so it's going to be across, high. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, you still see GA, light GA airplanes at Teterboro. We flew in a Cessna 180. Yeah. But a lot of other places, you know, San Francisco, I know it's like you never see light GA. Dulles, you never see light GA. Right. Um, a lot of other places. And that's, I think, partly because of fees. Yeah. People just don't go there. I went into, uh, about a month ago, Orlando International. Okay. There were like two other single engine airplanes. And I'll say, I went to Atlantic Aviation and it was a great experience, fantastic service. Right. And the ramp fees weren't bad. I think it was $40, uh-huh. which is, you know, it's like I, I paid 25 this weekend to park in Baltimore, you know. Oh, yeah. So there is something to be said for it. It costs money to run these businesses and, right. and especially at these airports with high leases. But ultimately, at these public use airports, the FBO, it's, it provides, in a way, this public service, right? They're providing access to the Absolutely. public airport. Right. And there's not a lot of transparency about these fees. Like they could charge what they kind of want to. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the FAA actually has a uh, an obligation to oversee what's going on at those uh-huh. airports because they're leasing out that that operation to oh, the I FBI. Gotcha. Right. So AOPA commissioned a study to find out. Okay, well, you know, you, you, we've heard for years people complain about it. It's like costs hundreds of dollars to go into certain airports, and it's like, hmm, why is that? Yeah. And how much really are people charging? Must be a reason for that. Yeah. And so we did a study and found that, yes, um, especially when there is consolidation among FBOs, which I think people know. There has been lately. Yeah, a lot absolutely. Of, a lot of consolidation. And depending on certain geographic regions, that, yes, prices are definitely higher in some of these places. So ask the FAA to look into it. And that, that's kind of where the issue is today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's still a lot more to do on this and um, to kind of work through the issue. But I guess the, the headline is, you know, one of AOPA's, um, one of the charters, one of the core tenets of AOPA is to lower the cost of flying. Uh, it's one of the three pillars. Yeah. We do that in a number of ways, and, and this is one of them. Right. Keeping an eye on it. Yeah. But now the FBOs need to make money. They need to be in yeah. business, too, and we're all for that, too. Yeah. You know, we, we want everyone to get along. Yep. But we want to make sure that there's some kind of an equitable arrangement where everyone is winning. Yeah. We want it to be a win-win. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're taking a look at that, and that's a good thing. Yeah, in fact, the story, Mark uh, made a comment, and I think it's uh, it, it says a lot about kind of where we are in this situation. It says, AOPA wants to continue to assess the situation and work towards solutions that preserve the profitability of FBOs while at the same time adhering to price obligations. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's They're right. Keeping an eye on things and you know advocating for GA from both sides of GA. Yeah. The different flyings that I've been to that you've been, in, been to, that is a common uh, theme that comes up. A lot of times, folks will grab Mark after, after the uh, you know after he would give a, a talk and, mm-hmm. and and corral him a little bit and, and ask about that. So I think that that issue has bubbled up a little bit and yeah. it's wor- worthy of a closer look. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. So last thing we want to talk about this week, really just to kind of bring it up again and and um, just talk about what we know uh, since it came out. But that's third class medical um, changes. Basic med. Basic med. Um, and AOPA's Fit to Fly Resources. We touched on it last week, but it had just come out. 
uh, when we recorded the show in, uh, two weeks ago, I guess now. And so want to just talk about that again and, and talk about some of the reaction that folks have had. They've um, had some real positive reaction. Here's someone that was quoted as saying, woohoo, I don't have to go renew next year. <laughs> is that a social media thing? I love that. Yeah, right. That's a re- good response there. Yeah. Um, yes, that was social media. And thanks funny. to that AOPA. Um, and a lot of people are, are congratulating AOPA, who basically drove the train on that deal mm-hmm. to, get, to get that passed. But there are a lot of common questions, I think, that people oh, yeah. will still have. And uh, I should point out that we do have a complete online resource page to deal with all this. Yep. So anything that you see... It's going to be a little symbol and with the words fit to fly. Fit to fly. Yep. That has to deal with basic med. And um, it's going to be everything from frequently asked questions like, hey, I got my medical eight years ago. Uh, I stopped flying, never applied for another one. Am I okay to go under uh, basic med? Which starts May 1st, we need to point out. Yep. Yep, that's okay. right. Yeah, so don't start flying without a medical today. Right. No, yeah, you would not. That would not be good. Well, that, see, so that's right. That's another question. It's like, hey, can I? My medical expires January thirty first. Can I fly on February first? No. It, well, assuming that you need a, otherwise need a medical, that's the answer is no. You got to right. wait till May first. May first, and so um, and so our pilot information center. They've been manning the phones day and night, night and mm-hmm. day, answering some of these common questions, which actually were posed to them even before this passed. And they yeah. were at the fly-ins at AirVenture and at our regional fly-ins, our four mm-hmm. regional fly-ins last year, and we'll have four more this year. There's yeah. always a long line of people asking for clarification. So yeah. there's still a lot of questions about basic med, and I know that they'll uh, they'll be implementing that, and uh, we're all looking forward to that May 1st date. Yeah, so I know one of the questions that we saw and one of the things that's come up is like, hey, where's the course? I want to take it. Well, the course isn't available yet. Still working on it. Yep. AOPA has developed something. FAA has to review it. If you took the course now, it wouldn't matter anyway. Um, you might, you know, I mean, you're going to you're gonna get a little bit of an education, but it's not going to count for anything. Right. Um, so, but, but there is every indication that the, that the FAA is on board with our course yes. and that they basically are, are giving the thumbs up to that. So yeah. I don't think we're premature in saying that it's almost a done deal. Yeah, I agree. Also, the checklist. I know Pete, there's so many easiness in uh, various areas about the checklist and they want to see it and uh, want to maybe pass it to their doctor now to prepare. I think that's a good idea. I would say don't, you know, if you're already in there for a physical for some other reason, it's like, hey, doc, uh, this FAA thing came up. Would yeah. you, you know, how'd you feel about signing this saying I'm okay to fly? Um, I think that's a good conversation to have. And so there is a draft questionnaire, as uh-huh. I understand it, that's out, but not the final. So again, it's like, it's a talking point with your doctor maybe today, but certainly Just nothing to go over. To get good background. Yeah. To find right. out if, if you're going to be good to go and if you're not. And the thing is, the, the whole basic med idea, that's going to bring a lot more people back into aviation. I think so. And hopefully it'll also bring more people into aviation that have not b- been into it to begin with because they won't have that fear factor involved. Yeah. I don't know what, what it would be. Um, to some people, but, but, but other folks are just a little bit afraid of, Oh, what kind of exam do I need? Yeah. And, and really all the ones I've had really haven't, haven't been too difficult in the first place anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's just getting your ducks in a row ahead of time. Right. So, yeah. It is a good thing to, uh, to not have to jump over that hurdle in your yeah. future. That's a great, that's yeah. great information. And I think, you know, the, the last point that I, I, you know, I personally am not going to do this and many others aren't either. However, AMEs are still going to be out there. They will be. Um, you're still welcome to go and get a third-class medical if that's what you feel like doing. Yeah. Um, but, of course, you know, all the all the uh, stipulations about that, which is that if you mess up on the form or there's something that's going on that you misreport or whatever the case may be, it's like, 
you know, you're you're still in that same bucket. None of that's changed. So um, now, when you when you were uh, getting your uh, FAA medical exam, yeah. uh, take me back to this. Uh, what was the one thing you were afraid of when you were in there? It's funny. I uh, I was in college and. I, you know, I didn't have a relationship with any doctor because it's like, you know, whatever, you're 21. Yeah, you're, you're brand new. And you can't field. get hurt. Right. You know, right. it's well, like you're invincible. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's when you rode motorcycles without helmets. That's and right. Else. That's, right. that's sure. exactly right. Yeah. Um, so I went to a guy and he happened to be a doctor in the campus, uh, you know, like teaching hospital and he's a super nice guy. We went through all the stuff, but um, he said, well, you know, the next time you do this, you're going to need glasses. Ah. And I was like, you're kidding. Like, no one had ever said anything like that. And so I went to the ophthalmologist to be like, hey, I want to get tested. I want to make sure I'm ahead of this for yeah. my next medical. And the guy tested me. He said, no, nah, you're 20-20. You're, you're How about that? You're good to go. And and he, and I was like, well, I just took this medical, and you got this eye chart, and what's going on? And he goes, yeah. oh, those things are terrible. Oh. He said, those eye things that they use are one-size-fits-all. They don't oh, really test very well. Gotcha. And so ever since, I've been scared that I'm going to go in there. And they're going to say like, well, not only are you, uh, do you not pass the vision? It's like, you don't wear glasses because the doctor wouldn't prescribe them for you. Right. And so it's like, sorry, you know, you can't, whatever you're going to, it's like, I'm going to put on your medical must wear glasses and I'm going to have to go get glasses Just for something fly. that I don't. Yeah. Right. right. And so and that was actually so, so interesting that you brought that up because I have pretty good vision now, but I used to have really poor vision. I got the LASIK stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, and that was the one thing I was afraid of as you get older, and uh, I'm not saying a lot of our podcast listeners are older, but I'm just saying, as you do, sometimes uh, close-up vision suffers a little bit. Yeah. So I was always afraid of uh, of affect me or not. It hadn't, but mm. it had always been really tricky. Uh, even when I wore glasses, it was yeah. tricky to line up. There's this one particular facet of that vision test that was some kind of a depth kind of a perception oh, yeah. thing. It was just tricky yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, but I have like 20, 20 vision in one eye and 20, 25 in the other. So I'm hmm. good that's, to go yeah, now you're good. too. Yeah. But, uh, that was one thing that worried me and I, I can understand it. I mean, that's why AOPA fought, you know, strongly and longly yeah. to try to eliminate some of this is that the equipment wasn't always up to speed. It didn't always work right for every doctor from with this office to that office. Mm -hmm. And, there's a lot of variations, and yeah. that could have caused someone to jump through a lot of hoops for yeah. really no reason. And the bottom line is, it's like you're going to have those real conversations with your doctor. It's like, hey, doc, I can't see anything. I need to go get glasses, right? Um, or, or you know, you're going to go in for a physical, and he or she is going to be like, you know, read this chart, and they're going to say, no, you need to go get glasses. So it's like, you know, under fit to f under basic med, you're you're going to be healthy. You're going to go to your doctor for these conversations. Yeah. And it's not like people are avoiding it in any way. It's like it's just an alternative method of compliance. Yeah. I, I think it'll help a lot of people. And like we said earlier, bring a lot of folks back into it. Yeah. It'll lower the hurdle for folks who have been considering aviation and really open the door. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. No, I, I agree. So, hey, speaking of new pilots. Yeah. Our guests this week. Guests, I should say. We have two. Two guests. Um. An area that uh, we haven't talked about a lot, you and I, but um, you know the industry is kind of talking about it, and that's drones. Oh, I'm interested in that. Yeah, I know you are as a, as a guy who snaps photos yeah, on, yeah. for a living and video. So that's I know you guys are all jazzed about that. But this is a little bit different use of a drone. Okay. One of our writers, Julie Walker, went to Northwest Idaho to learn a, a little bit more about a place that it's really coming on fast, which is agriculture. Oh, you're right. I, yeah. I could see how that could save a lot of money and be way more efficient. Yeah, so she found a couple of uh, a really neat story. It's like, you know, some multi-generational farmer and um, an ag pilot, a, a guy who owns an ag business yeah. that I think his grandfather started, uh, who I think has a 172, uh, but now has 
ventured out into drones. Into drones to help help uh, promote the agricultural aspects. Yeah. Maybe uh, lessen the eventual cost and you know pass less costs along to the uh, consumer. Yeah, that's right. So we'll turn it over to Julie and see how the crops are coming along with the new drones. I'm speaking with uh, Robert Blair. Robert, can you tell me about yourself? Yeah, I'm Robert Blair. I'm a fourth-generation farmer in north-central Idaho. I've been utilizing drones since 2006, and I'm the VP of Agriculture for Measure, who is a drone-as-a-service provider. We are a, the largest service provider in the United States and just finished off our Series B capital drive at $15 million. So we're looking uh, at a very good 2017 this year. Okay, well, we'll come back to that. But um, And I'm also with Robbie. Um, and Robbie, I'm going to butcher your last name. Can you say it for me? Yeah, it's uh, Shefflin. Shefflin. Why can't I do this? Okay. So Robbie <laughs> Shefflin is uh, a drone pilot, right? Yes, I'm a, a real aircraft pilot and a third third generation one. And I also do aircraft maintenance and help operate a crop dusting business. And I've recently got into drone flying just as a another experience to the flying career. Okay, so the two of you work together out there in Idaho. Um, Robert, tell me how you discovered Robbie. Well, I've known Rob's wife and mother-in-law, especially his mother-in-law, for over a decade. As my time of going through the chairs of the Idaho Grain Producers Association and my involvement with the National Association of Wheat Growers. Rob's wife, Carly, works for the College of Ag and Life Sciences at the University of Idaho, and, and we got to talking about drones and, and what I've been working on, and she goes, yeah, well, my fiancé is a pilot, and, and one thing led to another. How'd you feel about that, Robbie? You got volunteered for a job. No, it was great. Um, you know, I knew it was an up-and-coming thing, and, and I wanted to get my foot in the door. And I wasn't really sure how, and um, the company major kind of led me in the right direction and, and got me out there and, and doing it. So tell me about that the very first time. I, I don't know whether you know this or not, but when photographer Mike Pfizer and I arrived on site to meet you guys in Idaho, um, we were kind of taken aback by the drone because we were used to seeing quadcopter drones and of course yours is a let's see sensifly agby is that right uh, it's a eb ag and e- it's a fixed wing drone fixed wing so it and, looks um, incredibly different than the drones that most people think of don't you think oh yeah and you know part of the reason that is that there's only one motor to drive and and it's a lot more energy efficient and can stay up longer than say a quadcopter had you seen um, or flown anything before? I had, um, you know, for a hobby, flown quite a bit of model airplanes. And even flying this fixed-wing drone, it was so much different than the hobby planes I've flown. Um, you know, I'm flying it from a computer and setting it up that way, and it's doing just about everything by itself after I set it all up. So so Robert approaches your wife, and the two, you know, you, you guys obviously get together and discover... Yes, you'd be interested in it. What what was the next? What were the next steps to get you involved, and uh, be part of Measure? Um, my next step was to fly all the way to Florida and meet with a bunch of guys I've never seen before, and and get my hands on some of the equipment and actually learn it out in the field. We were flying over an orange grove, 
and that's just something I've never experienced before. I'm so used to to the wheat crops here in the Palouse that it was just a fun, amazing experience. Um, did it scare you? Were you nervous? Um, a little bit. One of the the flights we we took, um, we were using one of their new prototype cameras, and so we really, you know, we didn't want to crash the thing. Because that would and have been how much money? That was kind of the only. <laughs> um, you know, I think at the time it was probably around a four thousand dollar camera or something like that, and that's not including what the the drone cost. So they look at you and they say, "Hey, what makes you think you can do this?" Or did they give you a lot of help in the beginning? It was definitely a lot of help. Um, you know, I felt a little bit of pressure in in front of four or five other guys, making sure I was doing what I say I could do. But um, after that first day, you know, it was nothing the next day. I, I felt like I learned quite a bit in that first day and was able to practice here at my home base. We have about 223 acres of farm ground that I was able to really hone my skills on. So tell me, um, both of you, actually, about that area of Idaho. I had never been out there and um, had never heard the, the term Palouse. What's the area like for someone who's never been there? The area is rolling hills. Think of it kind of like sand dunes, only with good dirt, good topsoil for farming. Um, it's the only Palouse uh, in the world, kind of like the steppes of Russia, and you're dealing with steep slopes. Uh, we have levelers on the combine that uh, 35%, a light will go off and at max tilt, and the, the slope of the hill is steeper than 35%. Uh, it's where levelers were built uh, for. And a lot of farming was done with caterpillar tractors, crawler tractors, in order to help stay on the hills and handle the hills better. So, you know, there's a joke that's a, that goes around with farmers in the region that's a we say we farm three sides of an acre uh-huh. um, because of the slope. Well, you know, I think I left that kind of out of my story uh, in, the, in the magazine. I had forgotten about the hills. They really are dramatic. And I remember seeing one of those combines come across the top of that hill, and it, it gets framed, like you said, you know, sitting all, all alone at the tippy top, and then it's going to come down and, and, and not roll down. That's a good thing. So you said, you were talking a little bit about um, farmers, and obviously this area has been farmed for generations. You're, in fact, a third-generation farmer, Robert? Fourth-generation farmer. Fourth. Um, so what was the reaction to... Um, the ideas of farming technology that includes drones? Well, the first time I utilized a drone on my own farm was 2006. Didn't really tell anybody, and so that was kind of summer, late summer. And then in 2007, held a field day and had roughly 70 people on the farm. We were doing a, going to show them a demo flight, and the plane crashed. Oh, no. So not a good way to start things off, but the technology has come a long way. I know a lot of my farmer friends from around the country have received or purchased a multi-rotor to play around with, and they find the information useful. But a lot of skepticism, you know, there's a lot of hype out there, and, and everybody's waiting for it to start showing return on investment. Well, what kind of return on investment do you, especially through your work with Measure, and your own farm, what kind of return do you see? Crop insurance, being able to help verify where the damage is at, uh, animal damage, and then finding anomalies out in the field. 
areas where there's problems or skips from doing an application or field work. Health of the crop. So there's many different things. Being able to quantify a number for it has been kind of difficult in some instances because there are some things we don't take action on until the next season. It's just too late in the growing season or we can't take action for that. Well, what what do you think goes forward from here? What do you think it needs? To, what what needs to either change or or evolve to ensure that um, drone technology really is effective in farming? Well, software and sensors. We have great platforms right now. Autopilots and the software to fly them are very reliable. We just need better sensors, uh, better algorithms for that sensor, and to identify plants and and that is coming. There's a lot of work being done on it, and with Part 107 coming out last year and being enacted, that has given the industry, the drone industry, certainty that there's a commercial viable business model that can be had in the United States, and and that's what a lot of people were waiting for, especially investors, and so now you're seeing an influx of money coming into the software, and then, like with us, our uh, service model. So, Robbie, Tell me about being out in the field, how you get set up, and then how long you're out there, and then just what it feels like to be, because you're alone out there on the field most of the time, right? Yeah, um, well, it's fun to meet with new farmers I've never met before. There's such a good group of guys out here, so being able to meet new people and and be able to show them what I can do with this drone. If I'm doing, say, a a two- or three-hundred-acre field, I'll get permission to drive as close to the field as possible and set up a good viewing point, kind of get my bearings, you know, driving to a new place every time you're not used to it. You got to figure out your north, east, south, and west and and look for um, obstructions, power lines, tall trees, um, look for your good landing spots, check the, the wind speed direction, make sure you're going to have a good, safe place to land. And usually I can get in and out of a job around 203 acre size in, in just a couple hours or less. What are you giving them? What are you well, delivering? Um, I am I'm taking several different types of photographs that are all electronically stitched together by geotagging and I'm sending that data off to my company in Washington DC where they process the data and store it online for the farmer to view it sometimes the next day, sometimes that day or sometimes two days later if it's a larger field. But it's just a lot quicker data that you can get from viewing satellite imagery that's kind of an average image of the past couple of years. Are you seeing it on the computer as it's being done, or is it something that the camera's taking and, and you don't necessarily see it? I don't necessarily see it until I put all the data together and upload it to um, DC. And, and I can choose individual images if I saw something um, that I thought was maybe a problem area or whatnot. But um, I do get to see the finished product Every time I've gone out and, and flown, and it's really amazing to see that, that hey, I, I captured that data. What have you seen? That um, is there anything just um, aside from the obvious? Is there anything that's been really remarkable, like a lone wolf wandering around? <laughs> Nothing quite like that. I would say that to me, the most amazing thing to see is the things you miss with the naked eye. You know, you could go out and fly in, say, a Cessna 172, and think you're seeing a, a really great crop but you're just not able to see some of those areas that need attention and need help. And and with these sensors on the drones, it really points that out to you and, and gives you an idea for what to do to 
you know, next year or in the year after that and get your, get your returns back. Cool. So what's the next steps It's 2017, as you were saying earlier, um, Robert, that there's money out there and things are looking good. What, what do you see this year? What changes do you think are coming with drone technology? Well, we've seen an influx of software coming to the market and software providers and quite a few advancements in the software for analytics and being able to show that return on investment, which helps us out tremendously. And I think another one of the things that is going to be that I see for 2017 is more thermal imaging use cases. Uh, There was a lot of theory out there that thermal could show things that spectral imagery couldn't and that's kind of tending to be true and being pointed out that way. So I think you're going to see some more thermal imaging take place. Well, let's go backwards a little bit. I kind of skipped over it. Um, Robert, you started your, your family started the farm in what year? 1903. And you told me an interesting story about your uncle and not wanting to deal with new technologies. Oh, my great aunt. Oh, it was your aunt? Um, yep, my great aunt which is a neighbor of mine literally here, and she did not want the new technology on the farm, basically. There's a lot of sentiment like that out in the agriculture community. When she passed away, uh, one of the first things that uh, the person did was purchase an auto steer unit. And so technology can help, and it's precision tech is coming standard on equipment nowadays. And Robbie, your background, your dad had a flying service there. Can you tell me about your growing up in uh, that area? And by the way, so Robert Blair's farm is in Idaho, but uh, Robbie's location with the flying service is in Washington, but they are, what, 20 minutes from each other? Um, I think about half an hour and like 15 minutes flying. I'm actually a mile and a half from the Idaho border, so I'm, I'm right there. But um, my dad started a crop dusting service in 1978, and in about 2008 or so, my dad was looking to retire, and my sister and I were running the business. And at that time, I wasn't even a pilot, and I knew that I needed to be, and um, had my dad teach me to fly as well. He uh, taught my mom, taught my sister, and taught my brother, and once I got into the airplane and doing the flying myself. It was such a joy. I'm, I'm so glad I did it. Still uh, manage the crop dusting portion of it, and then I do aircraft maintenance as well and um, a little bit of drone flying in the summertime. Your father was fairly famous in that area, right? Yeah, he sure was. Um, he had about 22,000 hours ranging and uh, broke a triplane to uh, Grumman Goose. He had uh, built his own airplane from scratch, and um, a lot of people still remember him. And he died last year? Yep. Um, and you came back? Do you, did you come back um, to, to run the service? Well, I, I came back, um, you know, when he was looking to retire. You know, I wanted, I wanted to keep things going around here, and I wanted to be closer to my family again. And yeah, I just wanted to be back in this area. It's so beautiful here, and I love it. So it was a good, good move. And how about the relationship between you and Robert? Did the two of you still spend a lot of time working together or are you more um, autonomous at this point? Well, I get pretty busy in the wintertime doing aircraft maintenance and I haven't had to do a lot of drone stuff this winter. Um, For me, it slows down. For Robert, it's probably just as busy 
you know, setting things up for the, the summertime. So the snow is keeping you, um, keeping you in the hangar and not out on the fields. Yeah. Unless I'm out plowing, you know, I, I was getting pretty tired of doing that, <laughs> doing the same thing over and over again. I had to get the backhoe out to move some of the snow banks back further so the wings would clear on the runway. <laughs> you really guys, you guys have had a lot of snow, huh? Yeah. It's been an unnormal year, so to speak. And I mean, with me from the middle of December to two weeks ago, I was plowing snow almost every other day, and and oh, we probably received a total of four feet. It had melted down and settled down, and, and now there's probably a foot and a half. We had warm weather uh, for the last week, and, and what was it, early last week, Rob? It was just like a sheet of glass out there. We had freezing rain yeah, come through, was... compacted, and, and I almost fell four times from the house to the office. Hmm. Well, that I part of it... About four cars and then and have uh, fallen about three or four times myself. <laughs> but that is the good part about uh, four-season farming, right, is that this is wonderful for the coming uh, harvesting months, right? A lot of water like this from snow is a good thing? Oh, yeah. This, this has been really well received. It's going to help fill up the aquifers um, because it's, it's been a nice slow melt. Um, into the ground so we've been very fortunate there that we haven't had a lot of rain and and warm temps to take it off quick but yeah it's been very well received and it helps protect the plants especially during a couple of cold spells we had that dipped down into the zeros uh, or below zero so the kind of crops that you look at especially in that area is wheat and uh, legumes is that right? Yeah, we're looking at wheat, barley, peas, lentils, garbanzo beans, alfalfa. Um, there's also different grass crops grown for seed as well in the area here. But, yeah, we've flown everything from corn, soybeans, wheat, um, to lettuce, sugarcane, and uh, string beans, orchards, uh, onions. It, it's been, last year was really an interesting year. Great. Okay, well, I think we're going to wrap this up a little bit unless you, if I've left out something that you guys wanted to talk about. I can't think One of the things I'd like to mention is Measure is a drone service company, and we are the first company to, to franchise. And so we're looking at franchisees across the country. Uh, so if people are interested, and we're not doing just agriculture, we do all different types of uh, industries as well, from news media to towers to mining and forestry. Okay. And Measure um, approached you, what, two or three years ago to join them? So it was 2015 when uh, I received an email from Measure. Uh, I'd been at the Interdrone conference uh, on an ag panel, and, and the next week I received an email from them let it percolate for a few days, showed it to my wife, and she said, what you going to do? So I called on it, and uh, the rest is history. Led to uh, Rob and I doing flights and projects together. How about you, Robbie? You can see yourself continuing to do this? I think so. You know, with, with the technology that's coming out, I think there's definitely going to be a more demand for it. And um, I really don't see it slowing down in this area as long as there's green crops popping up out here. There'll be drones flying. Perfect. I do have one parting 
sure. on a regulatory side. You know, we do have Part 107 where you do not need to get a an exemption to fly anymore, just have uh, UAV pilot endorsement. We need to be looking at aerial application and utilizing drones for that. So that's the next regulatory hurdle um, on the agriculture side besides line beyond line of sight and flying at night, which we want to make sure we measure and the drone community want to make sure that we are operating safe and measures tagline is safe legal and insured we we try to uphold the highest standards of operation out there because you know the airspace that's something that's precious to all of us here in the united states you bet you bet well thank you both nice to talk to you thank you guys David, you're not a farmer, but I know you're into drones. So I am. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to getting more at the speed on the drones and doing a little drone flying. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, amazing technology. So I think that's it uh, for Hangar Talk this week. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. Find us on aopa.org slash hangartalk or email us at hangartalk at aopa.org. Don't forget we're now on iTunes and at Sporty's Takeoff app. Great. Thanks, David. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Ian. See you next time. Oh!